Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where we're going? Where do we go from here? I'm very excited to have our guest on today. Before I introduce him, I want to make sure that you know who the voices are in this podcast. I'm Richard Littower. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, along with Justin Dorfman, co-host of many an episode. Justin, how are you doing today? Great. How are you? Doing good. I know you're in LA. I hope you had the chance to go check out that snowy owl that was down there. Coolest thing ever. So I'm calling from Vermont. I just came back from skiing. So if I sound out of breath, it's because I was doing the Vermont thing. Our guest today was not skiing because Seattle almost never gets a lot of snow. But Joel Wasserman, I believe, has been on before. He is the co-founder, a founder of Flossbank. Super excited to talk about Flossbank and what happened to it and what's happening next, which is the main thing for this podcast. Joel is joining us from his home. He's also an engineer at Google, just for full context, talking to a full stack person who knows what he's doing enough to pass awesome Google interviews. Joel, how are you doing today? What's going on? Hey, good. Not much. Happy to take the time to talk to you guys. It's been a while. Has been a while. For our listeners who don't know, tell us about what Flossbank is. Sure. So a few years ago now, it's crazy time flies, but probably four years ago, I stumbled upon Ferris's funding experiment where he threw advertisements in the CLI to fund open source. Me and my friend thought, wow, that's so cool. And Ferris shut it down, it turns out, because people were kind of felt spammy. It was opt-out versus opt-in. And a lot of people don't want to see ads they don't opt into. Even though the web is littered with that, it felt like the terminal was this sacred space where opting into ads was very important. It was a sacred space without ads previously. But historically, open source has also been without funding. So I thought this was an extremely creative way to bring funding into the open source ecosystem. Farash shut it down. My friend and I thought, hmm, maybe we can do this a little bit differently. Maybe we can make it opt in. Maybe we can make the ads show and then disappear when the NPM install is done or the pip install is finished. Maybe we can do this a little bit differently. So we set off building Flossbank. And the plan, the initial plan was to show ads briefly in the terminal, rotating ads during installation of open source packages. And the revenue generated from those ads would be distributed down the entire dependency tree of the open source package being installed. In theory, this was awesome. We built it. We loved it. Turns out not very many people loved it. (laughs) And with ad revenue, it is a not very difficult math problem where the revenue generated from ads is very tiny. So it only makes a difference if thousands and thousands slash millions and millions of people are viewing these ads. So because we only had about 300 people viewing ads, the individual packages were getting like three cents a month, which maybe three cents is a lot to some people, but it wasn't enough. So that was that. We kind of let that keep running. And then we switched gears and we thought, okay, let's go after companies because companies have discretional income. Companies use open source technology. A lot of companies wouldn't exist without that open source software. So, hey, maybe we can convince companies to give. And in building our CLI tool, we had already engineered this system of distributing money to an entire dependency tree of an open source package. So we already had that system in place. So it was quite easy porting it over for companies. So a company could just install our app on their GitHub, donate a thousand bucks a month, and we would distribute it to every single open source dependency that they rely on automatically. Pretty cool. We thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> this is another thing. It is pretty cool. It is pretty cool, just to be fair. <laughs> You're not the only person. 
It is interesting. And I'll kind of get to the learnings later. But I guess to fast forward, Fosbank no longer exists. We shut down. But that's just a spoiler alert. So we started going after these companies. And a few companies were thrilled about this because we thought the existing pattern of open source donations was for a company to have to actually employ someone to comb through their open source dependencies of some frequently used ones, they would then have to find what's the best funding mechanism for this package. Is it GitHub sponsors? Is it Open Collective? Is it something else? Bitcoin. And then decide based on some subjective, pretty arbitrary decision mechanism, okay, we're going to donate a huge amount of money to maybe one or two packages. And this is laborious for companies. So we thought, hey, maybe we're providing value here by letting them just click a button, hook us into GitHub, and we do all that for them. What we didn't know and what we quickly found out is that a lot of companies actually want to have a relationship with the maintainer that they are donating to. It's not about just donating money to their dependencies. It's oftentimes about creating almost a marketing relationship with a maintainer. The maintainer would get a donation to keep working on their work and then also maybe write a blog post about how thankful they are that Facebook is donating to them or something of the sort. That was impossible through our mechanism. So a lot of companies are like, what do I get back from the maintainer? What kind of marketing does this give us? And we didn't really have an answer for that. We thought the goal was just to efficiently give money to open source maintainers. We didn't know about the other goals. So that's learning number one. Significant learning. It really hindered convincing companies to give to open source. Let me ask you something. So I know that onboarding can be very difficult. What are some lessons you learn there for future folks that are trying to do what you're trying to do? So I think what you meant is kind of the burden of bringing on a new vendor, of finding the person with the credit card, dare I say, which was did learn a lot with that. So it turns out this was also a big problem with funding open source that we encountered was small companies startups are acutely aware of the open source that they rely on. Very, very acutely aware of this. They want to give back. They understand that open source is kind of the backbone of most of these companies. But small companies have no money. They have a limited runway as it is. They're trying to just get by. They're not turning a profit. They don't have money to give to those open source dependencies. And there's some iffy opinions in that. But regardless... They don't have the money. So then you go to a large company somewhere like Facebook that has so much money, you say, well, they must want to give. But then you run into issues of becoming a vendor. How do you convince them to give? What kind of marketing opportunities are we giving back? It's this whole process that possibly you could create that relationship, but it would take much, much more effort versus the startup was if they had the money, they had the credit card, they were going to give right away. So it turned out on both sides of the spectrum, the small company, large company, It was extremely difficult to find a company that was willing to give. Also, on large companies, you have the whole issue of, well, do we want to be giving to every single package? What if we're giving to a package whose maintainer we don't have the same views as? We are almost binding ourselves by donating to this person. So they actually want to vet who they're giving to as well. So then we thought through this, we were like, okay, the sweet spot is mid-sized companies, companies that might have money, The person you talk to who has the credit card might have context as to the open source dependencies they use. And if the person with the credit card was acutely aware of this, the open source they rely on, then that was the goldmine. It was just very difficult to find those companies where 
you'll talk to one person and that person will have enough power to make the distribution and the donation and they have enough money to do it. And they're not. So, so it was kind of like a pipeline issue as well. It wasn't just the onboarding. Totally. It was finding the right customer. I mean, that was, was actually very difficult for us because even if we found a mid-sized company that had enough money to donate, sometimes the person you're talking to is head of marketing and head of marketing has oftentimes no idea what open source packages they rely on, how many they don't have maybe the permissions to install a GitHub application. That's maybe the CTO. So you end up corralling a bunch of these high-level people into the same room. And it's quite difficult when we don't have a definitive return on investment. We are, hey, you can give much more efficiently and make an impact on the OSS you depend on. And so corralling three high-level people from a company into a room to say that is, is difficult. <laughs> I'm not a salesman, so it was doubly difficult. <laughs> Working at Google, I'm sure you have a lot of ways to get introduced to different companies and higher-ups that can make things happen. But still, it's difficult to get a credit card and for an unproven business. It's just really hard. And that's why we're here to ask you these questions. So those who want to build similar businesses in the future they can survive. I'm really curious about finding the right person, right? So the small companies don't have any money. Mid-level companies are great if you can find them. Large companies just don't work. Do you think the issue was that you were the middleman? Or do you think the issue was that's just the nature of the game? So if I'm an open source project, is it a lot easier for me to go out and pitch my exact project? Or is, am I only saying that because I've been looking at survivorship bias from the projects that have managed to do that well? And is it actually really hard to find money for any project in general in open source? Yeah. So Nadia Eggball's book on open source, Working in Public, does a much better job of answering that question than I ever will. But I can give my attempt, I think. And I probably will just be regurgitating what I remember from that book because that book was just so incredible. The best book I've ever read and probably will ever be written on the open source ecosystem of the past 10, 15 years. So yeah, definitely check it out. I think the maintainers that do it well put a lot of marketing effort into it. And they are top-level dependencies. For top-level dependencies, I don't think it's too difficult to prove your value to a company. And so if you put in the work with marketing materials, I think you could probably garner donations. I think it's still very difficult to get donations from a big company, even if you're a prominent top-level maintainer. But the problem we were trying to address is less for top-level maintainers and more the maintainers of packages below the surface. Because when somebody NPM installs React or TypeScript or something high-level, they often think, I'm just using TypeScript or I'm just using React. Maybe I should just give to those teams but they don't understand that they're pulling in open source packages maintained by other maintainers below the surface of React and TypeScript and Webpack and Babel, everything else. There's so many packages maintained by people that those packages depend on. And those packages have a very, very difficult time to walk up to a company and say, hey, you use me. You might not directly install me, but you use me. I am in your dependency tree. And as a matter of fact, I'm in a million other dependency trees. But it's very difficult to show that 
in a compelling way, I think. So I think that the vast majority of open source maintainers who find success in garnering donations are those that are top level installs. So if you walk up to a developer and say, hey, you NPM install me all the time, that developer is much more likely to say, oh yeah, of course I'm going to kick back. Whereas if you walk up to that developer and say, I'm an indirect dependency of something you install all the time, the person will be like, oh, I didn't know that. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that package. So it's very subjective. It also depends how much time the maintainer has to putting towards garnering donations. So our hope with FlossBank was to kind of eliminate all of the work burden on maintainers to fund themselves. We wanted to do that work burden for them. But it turns out it was also extremely hard for us. That's fair. I think it does answer a lot of the questions I have. It points to the problem of like, it's just hard in general for maintainers. In the blog post you wrote last June, the FlossBank attempts, you say, if you'd like to chat about anything about the project or learnings, please don't hesitate to reach out. Who's reached out? Great question. And I think somebody who's been on your podcast, Ali. Yeah, Ali. Nezhat. Yes, out in Australia. So Ali is awesome. Listen to his podcast episode if you haven't already. He's working on thanks.dev. Stackade. And they're the- also on the podcast. It'll have come up by the time you, you hear this, listeners. Yes, Dudley and I also spoke. Dudley's in Seattle, which was great. We could meet up for coffee. Ollie's in Australia. So we meet up virtually quite frequently. Um, and have kept in touch. But yeah, this problem has not gone away. So I think we will continue seeing derivatives of FlossBank or a funding mechanism. I mean, basically what we saw with FlossBank was a derivative of Ferris's experiment. And which is kind of a derivative of GitTip, right? So in Gratify, which also went away at the same time. So exactly. So we're just derivatives of each other. So thanks.dev is just a little evolution. Stackade seems like a little evolution. So I love seeing innovation in the space. Of course, I wish FlossBank could have been more successful, but I've been chatting with Ali with thanks.dev, which check it out. It's an amazing platform to give back to the open source dependencies you rely on. And of course, run a few websites that rely on open source. So we are donating as well through thanks.dev. Stackade is also really, really cool. Both mechanisms are similar to FlossBank in the sense that they have incorporated this giving down the entire dependency tree, which I think is incredibly important to do if you're garnering donations in open source is to not just give to the top level. It's a trap. So I'm curious, GitHub sponsors does seem to give a lot of money towards people. It's probably only giving in a way that's meaningful to 10%, if that, of the people who are on GitHub sponsors. Just as data there, I'm on GitHub sponsors. No one sponsors me on GitHub. Don't go sponsor me. It just happens, right? Yeah. There are some people who get money off it. Open Source Collective, 4,000 projects, something like $8 million worth of funds on behalf of those projects, most of which is, again, for a small amount of those projects. That's just how the long tail works. I only know those numbers because I work there, full disclosure. What do you think the benefits of those two things are in comparison to yours? Why are those able to garner some money? And do you think that they're running into the same issue? Do you have any thoughts on that part of the ecosystem? So with GitHub sponsors, I actually don't know if they've incorporated giving down the entire dependency tree. I don't think they have. No, you give to a single sponsor. There's an attempt. And it hasn't necessarily borne a ton of fruit. It's an interesting project, but it's also kind of a like, let's see if this works. Right. But I think we also ran into the same issue of like, well, who is finding it? And we have to talk about this thing as opposed to the code itself. I was more curious, like, do you think that all projects should go by the charismatic, here's my profile attempt? Why are those succeeding? Yeah. 
Yeah, a few things. I think there's just two sides to what's going on. There's the individual providing as many payment mechanisms as possible for themselves. So that's just opening the door per se for money to flow in. So that's when somebody sets up an open collective or sets up a Bitcoin address or sets up a GitHub sponsors. Oftentimes maintainers are doing all of that because the more doors that are open, Ko-Fi, all exactly. Of it, yep. The more doors that are open, the better. And then there's the the element of if I'm giving to open source, sometimes I want, like you said, a relationship, a one-on-one relationship with the code. I can talk about the code that I'm giving to. I can talk about the maintainer that I'm giving to. I can craft a story around it. So when you introduce another layer in between, which was what Open Source Collective, Back Your Stack, Flossbank, thinks that what a bunch of these are trying to do, I haven't thought of a way to make it work. Open Source Collective has done a great job because they've leveraged their existing exposure to large donors. So lots of people already give through Open Collective, so they can kind of leverage that existing donor audience. It's very difficult to find a donor audience. So Open Collective kind of got that jump on it, which was extremely valuable. And GitHub did the same thing, right? Because they also have all the network effects of all the developers working on GitHub. So it's much easier to see, oh, Sintrasaurus does a lot. Okay, cool. Let's just give to him here. Exactly, exactly. I think to your point about, is it just up to the maintainer to just promote or be charismatic? Sadly, I think at this point, yes, it is. If you want to raise any money, for your open source work, you're going to need to self-promote and market. That's just how it is today. Speaking of tomorrow then, let's take a left turn. Clearly donating to your entire dependency tree as a method is nascent. It may be successful in the future. It wasn't successful for you. It may work out. We don't know yet, but there's a lot of cynicism and there's a lot of like, this is really hard. To going around, which is, I think, legitimate and fine. There are movements at the national level and at the federal level, both in the EU and in the states, towards codifying digital infrastructure as something that's important to national security, something important to the global economy. Do you feel like there will be any sort of government's grants going down the dependency tree? Have you thought about that sort of money coming into the system? And what would you say the benefits or detractions of that might be? I would love that. I think we live in this tragedy of the commons right now, not to harp on it, but where we have this common good, which is all this open source code that's available to clone, to edit, to redistribute, etc. But people just take it for granted. And they say, well, why should I fund it if the next person isn't funding it? It's very similar to every other common good that we take for granted. So should the government be involved in funding this public good Hard for me to say. My quick answer is somebody needs to be involved funding this. I think there's obviously like the Ford Foundation, which does massive grants. So they're trying to pick it up. But we actually spoke with somebody when we first launched Fossbank at the, I believe it was consulting for the Swiss government. And the Swiss government was trying to give back to their open source dependencies, similar to like what you just mentioned. I think the person we were talking to was trying to present a case of, this is why we should do it. These are the options available XYZ. And I don't actually know what happened with that. But there are definitely conversations happening. And not to get too political, but yes, of course, I think public goods need public funding. Whatever mechanism is available for that, I would encourage for sure. And yeah, like you said, national security. And that's oftentimes how things get funded is it'll first be seen as 
national security project. And then the byproduct of this is, oh, it's actually, we've created something great for humanity or whatever else. You know how so many like medical devices get created from military research or something like that. So, Well, we're in luck because there is a Securing Open Source Software Act. In 2022, they have to reintroduce it, which is being done by Senator Gary Peters of Michigan. So it's about $275 $275 million over a five-year period. Yeah. Which so, goes towards the creation of an OSPO. It doesn't go towards open source dependencies yet. It goes towards right. what do we have to do with open source. So there's money around, but whether or not it's floating among pundits is something that's debatable. It's happening. I mean, things are moving. If you told me this in 2011, when I first started in open source, I'd be like, there's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's just, but it's like where we're going and it's pretty cool. So yeah, I think you're hit the nail on the head there. So things are happening. It's interesting you mentioned Switzerland. I believe LF is moving to Switzerland to make it easier if they haven't already moved for them to get Chinese money or something like that. I don't know. That's a whole other topic I don't want to get into because I don't have all the details. And I feel like it's just whispers I've heard at corridors at conferences. But what's really interesting for me is we're seeing an act come out right now, proposed act in Europe, which is going to demand that anyone who manufactures open source software make sure it's secure. Not as an optional thing, but like if you make software and you license it open source, you have to make sure it's secure, which is going to just cut the head off a ton of open source developers who don't have those resources. Now, I'm not asking you to be abreast of all that, Joel. What I am asking is you mentioned that open source is like a commons. But it's not like a commons because while sure, it could be like a field that we all graze our cows in. Everyone who has written open source software or the people who were in charge of that software have licensed it in a way that says other people can use it for free. This was an intentional choice that was made by them to give it away, therefore reducing the ability for them to gather any money off of it. You have to find other ways to get money off of it, which is really hard. So it's not like it's something that's outside of human means that happened. This was a deliberate choice, which makes it very difficult for them to get money. So I'm really curious, what do you think about the fact that maybe Flossbank was never going to work because there just isn't that much altruism in the world from companies that you're asking for something that you that is impossible? I'll touch on what you said initially, which is that it's not really a common, that people are choosing to license it a certain way. And I think this brings up a really good point, which Nadia Eggball's book touches on as well, which is there is a ginormous rarely spoken difference between an open source author and an open source maintainer. An author chooses to put that license up. An author has given no promise to working on this, to securing it toward making sure that other companies get what they want, bug fixes, future maintenance, making sure their dependents, no guarantee. That's an open source author. And I think when we talk about open source funding, I'm actually not really focusing on open source authors I think of myself more as an open source author than an open source maintainer. And I actually want to popularize the difference between those two and using those terms because I often write code that might be helpful to somebody to fork, to read, to understand, to see as a proof of concept. I'll just write it and I'll throw it on GitHub and I license it open source. I have no desire or plan to ever maintain that, ever. And I often get requests to upgrade it, maintain it, fix a debt, make sure it's still running, make sure this Android example still works. I don't do it. That's not why I'm in the open source ecosystem. I'm an open source author and I have licensed that code. 
Open source maintainers are what I'm advocating to get paid. And open source maintainers are the ones who are keeping code up to date, making sure it's secure, making sure the dependencies are up to date, making sure the dependencies are secure. Those people are putting in work. And to your point that it's like, oh, this package, like it's their choice to make it open source. Yes, I agree that it's the author's choice. But once that code is being used in a common way, like the way I see it, back to your analogy of like being a meadow with a bunch of soft grass in it. Once that code is published with an open source license, it becomes another blade of grass in that meadow. And there's really no going back. So once that code is out there, who's going to mow that meadow? Who's going to water it? Who's going to make sure that it doesn't become a poisonous bog? Once the code is out there, once the author has slapped that license on there that says this is open source, and the people who mow it and water it and make sure it doesn't turn into a bog, those people need funding. Not necessarily the person who just threw a seed into the field. The comments metaphor you used was really good. Thank you so much. It's, it's awesome to also make the distinction between author and maintainer. I think it's a really well laid out distinction that we don't appreciate enough. So I'm grateful. Yeah, I just want to just finish out on that. Because we don't separate out those terms, we're really screwing maintainers versus the authors because there are so many people on GitHub that we say, oh my gosh, that open source maintainer is incredible. But they're not a maintainer. They're just an author. They'll publish stuff and they'll leave it to die. Not that it dies. They'll just throw a seed into the field, which is great. That is adding to the field of soft grass. But Really, I think the population of maintainers is much less and much, much more valuable than the open source authors. If everybody was just an author, we would have a poisonous bog right now. But thankfully, we have many, many maintainers that put in a lot of hard work, time-consuming work, to make sure that it's still a green meadow. And I think almost all open source funding conversations should center around the maintainer which really filters out a huge portion of like GitHub packages, GitHub users, really, that need funding much less. I think the best example is like with Homebrew, Max Howell is the author and Mike McQuaid is the maintainer. And I think that sometimes they get confused because Mike has done for Homebrew is some people just don't realize like what amazing work he's done to grow and scale that out the way he and his team has done. It's pretty miraculous. I think you make a great point about author versus maintainer. And another point I have with that is for all future companies, StackAid, thanks.dev, anyone else who decides to go into this, if you just reach out blank cold calls to people on GitHub being like, oh, they own a package with lots of stars. They're probably interested in open source funding. They're probably going to be my own advertisement, because once I start funding them, yes, incorrect, because the vast majority of users on GitHub are not maintainers. So I will say the advice for future people is to really distinguish between author and maintainer because your audience is not authors. I, for example, like I mentioned, I consider myself an author. I rarely maintain, if not, if ever, unless it's a project I'm actively working on. And because of that, I actually don't care at all about funding because I think The personas of people who maintain an author are dramatically different. Authors are tinkerers, inventors, maybe people who just mess around, throw stuff to the public. Just throw it on. Just the kind of the working in public mindset. I'm just, I'm messing around. I throw it on GitHub. I would venture to guess that all authors are not doing that for money. I'm not messing around with stuff to just throw it on GitHub and hope that I get sponsored. I don't even care if anybody uses it. And I think the vast majority of authors don't care if it gets used. I think they're just throwing what they build 
what they're in- exactly what they're interested in. They just throw it on because, hey, somebody else might find this useful. The maintainer persona is so, so different. It is so different. And maintainership is work. It is triage of bugs. It is triage of feature requests. It is actual improvements to a package. It is long-term commitment. It is a dramatically different persona and role than author. Yeah. I mean, another thing that I've learned through the years is I can't get paid because I work for this company and I can't have a second income. Another one, you can't pay me because I live in a country that's sanctioned. It's just, there's all these different ones. You're like, oh, wow. You just have this like worldview of, oh, everyone lives in the United States. I could easily just send them money and it's fine. And it's just not that easy. It's getting easier and easier by the year with all the new infrastructure that's being built out and just agreements that are being made. So it's definitely getting easier, but still there's parts of the world that we cannot send money to. Yep. And there's definitely an issue with KYC. Know your customer. You don't want to be sending money to the wrong people or the FBI might be knocking on your door. And yeah, just to close out my previous thought that I think I just wandered away from is definitely if you're working on something like FossBank or Thanks.dev or StackAid in the future, reach out to maintainers. Make sure who you're talking to, who you're interviewing are maintainers, not authors. It will be way better use of your time. I think it took us quite a while to figure out that there was a difference because authors will probably not at all be interested in getting funded. In our experience, that was the case. Maintainers will be very interested. Justin, just if I can touch on briefly payment mechanisms, I think there was some, one thing really cool that we did with Fosbank was we worked with this company called Coil that uses Interledger. It's not really crypto. It's kind of in the crypto space, but it's a way to stream micropayments to people and they can receive it in their local currency. And it supports everything, I think, basically every country except for like four, which was really cool. And also it was really cool because we could stream micropayments. It wasn't like, oh, we have to send a certain amount through Stripe to some receiver and we have to know that customer. We have to know details about them and their contract, whatever. It was kind of Interledger's and a lot of other companies are working in this space, but making it much, much easier to send small payments all over the world digitally and for the people to receive them in their own currency, to kind of pull them out in their own currency. I think it's really cool. And working in that space, although briefly, was extremely interesting piece of FossBank and funding open source is the actual money sending mechanism. I think what's really interesting for me is thinking about the long-term effects of what your learnings mean for people wishing to invest in open source and people wishing to get money off it. If you're an author, it's very hard to get money off it. You might even be better off having a patents clause and figuring out like how to make your work work for you. This is one of the main issues with academia. You can't just get clout by being on committees and helping out maintain stuff. You have to get clout by being a first mover. You have to publish first. It's really hard. And in open source, you can kind of get some clout for doing that, but it's tough to get remunerated for it at all. And if you're a maintainer, it's a whole different story. How do you figure out how to get money for the work that you're doing? If I'm thinking from an OSPO perspective, if I want to give money towards my open source developers, I think the answer I'm coming up with, Joel, is don't try and fund your dependency tree at all. Because it's going to be really hard for you to figure out who's going to want to take the money and what your dependency tree even is and how to make sure that's actually working for you in terms of like a marketing perspective or a reputation perspective. You'd probably be better off finding 50 dependencies that you have and working really hard to know the maintainers there and make sure that they're really you know, working for you, which is sad. 
because I want to help everyone out, but I'm thinking about like what actually matters to companies. And I think it's actually the former. It's actually like small targeted investments are better than funding an entire dependency tree at this moment, given the tech we have, given the nature of the industry. Am I misreading the situation? I think there's the realistic view, which I think you've stated quite clearly. And then there's the optimistic view that even though you might not get a direct return on investment, you should be giving to your entire open source dependency tree because you don't know what you depend on or you don't know what maintainer needs that money to do their work, to keep their package secure, to keep their package up to date until it breaks. So actually, I would frame it in a keeping your tech stack bug-free and vulnerability-free. In order to do that, I would fund every single open source package you depend on. And even if 60% don't care about that funding or don't see it or whatever, the 40% that do care will maintain their packages, will secure them, will review the pull request to make sure vulnerabilities aren't being introduced. So for all the OSPOs out there or startups that are thinking about funding their open source, I think your risk management should definitely play a piece in this. How do I So it sounds like insurance, right? So like you give to all of them and the hope that some of them are going to use that money to keep their stuff going, that the majority do. And then when one of them goes wrong, you can actually maybe donate a bit more to that one to make sure that it stays afloat. And so a mixture might be best. Definitely a mixture might be best. And that's actually what we would encourage because as an OSPO or a company, you want to get some marketing materials out of this, some partnership materials out of this, you're going to have to go with a one-on-one approach. But at the same time, if you're viewing this as risk mitigation for your tech stack, I would donate to every single open source dependency that you rely on and actively comb through your dependencies to make sure that there is a maintainer for dependencies that you rely on. Don't be laying in the meadow and accidentally sit on a thorn. Love all these metaphors. <laughs> like <laughs> Richard just started us out with the grassy meadow and we just there we now, go. Now all three of us are frolicking in it. <laughs> I think you make an absolutely great point because that is exactly what I'm doing at Sourcegraph is we have one-on-one relationships with the maintainer, the author and maintainer of Codemir. So we pay him directly. We have a one-on-one relationship. He sends me an invoice once a month. I say, hey, how are you? Everything good? Yes. And then we have the thanks.dev where it's just, I don't even know who I'm paying. You know, it's just, it just goes out. So I think having a hybrid approach is probably like your best bet. And I actually want to bring another piece into the puzzle that I forgot to bring up earlier, which is diversity and open source. So when you blanket give to your open source dependencies, you are opening the door for anybody all over the world, no matter their sporadic internet connection, no matter their time window when they can email you back, no matter their online presence, you are opening the door to let them potentially make money off open source code that they develop. Anyone can, if they make a useful open source package and it gets pulled into some dependency tree, of some popular package, if you're giving all your open source dependencies, you will start funding that package without even knowing it, without creating a one-on-one relationship with this person that might be difficult to create a one-on-one relationship with because of time zones, location, internet connection, whatever. So you actually are allowing the possibility, you're opening the door to a much more diverse open source ecosystem than what we currently have because what we currently have is 
primarily limited to people who can write code in their extra time outside of working hours, which means they're financially stable, which means they have time for a hobby. Oftentimes, they have the energy after work to do so. So right now, we actually have a pretty homogenous open source community in my experience. And we would like to see that change. And one very useful mechanism for that will be just blanket funding your open source dependency tree and opening the door for people anywhere to publish and maintain open source packages that are useful and start getting paid for it automatically. So here's a fun question. I know you weren't able to do this, but I'm curious. Let's assume there's 500,000 packages in the world that matter for everyone. How many companies have to give to make it meaningful for all the maintainers? How many water sprinkler systems or something? How many sprinklers do we need? How many drips systems do we need? Um, I think it's really difficult to answer. I think when you start introducing money into the ecosystem, some really interesting things will happen. Probably some not great things, probably some little bit of drama, maybe somebody forking a popular open source library and maintaining it better. It is open source after all. Anybody can fork it, start maintaining it themselves. I think there could be a little bit of a bumpy road, but I don't think we're going to have this exorbitant number of open source packages that are useful. Like you said, 500,000 useful packages or something like that. I don't think it's going to just balloon if we start introducing money into the ecosystem. I think there is a limit to how much information we as developers can consume. And there's probably actually far fewer packages that are useful to everybody in the world. When we were doing our work at Flossbank and we distributed to a few thousand packages, I think, It didn't take very many donors. If we were running like 50K a month, then packages were getting a substantial amount just through us. But they were also probably getting money through GitHub sponsors or maybe one-on-one relationships or maybe Open Collective. So I don't think you need very many to make a substantial dent in an open source maintainer's income. I think you might need quite a few sprinkler systems if it's going to be their entire livelihood, if it's their full-time job. But that's the dream. Is somebody can can mow this lawn for us, can fertilize it, and actually make a living, have a family, support them, etc. All for more mowers out there and more fertilizers. Joel, this has been excellent. I think we should really stop having metaphors, which means we should stop talking, <laughs> which is actually okay because we're at the end of time. I loved having you on. I loved having your experience Likewise. and your wisdom. It's really good to have someone who not to use a martial metaphor, has been in the trenches and seen how this stuff goes <laughs> down to come and talk about it later. So thank you so much. It is awesome. Joel, you have a lot of knowledge to give. Where can people reach out to you? Where can they read your words? Yeah, I'm not very active on Twitter. Definitely reach out on Twitter though, and I will respond. I read my DMs. And then I think just any knowledge that I can share is almost certainly, I've said this probably 10 times in the podcast, and I would like to spotlight it again, but Nadia Eggball's book, Working in Public, is just a treasure trove of knowledge. The interviews, the statistics put into writing that book are just invaluable if you're working in open source sustainability. So yeah, it's a great book. So, so you can reach out to me, definitely. And if you have the desire to reach out to me, I would also buy that book. It's so well written. Awesome. Yes, so that's re- your spotlight for today. <laughs> yeah, he jumped the gun. Yeah, I know. I know. I got ahead of you guys. I didn't want, yeah, I didn't want good. to miss my chance. I didn't want to miss my chance. No, no, no. It's all good. You didn't miss your chance. Listeners, Spotlight is part of the show where we highlight something or someone that has helped us out in the past. It seems like 
for Joel, Naughty Eggball's Working in Public is a great example. And you can reach out to him. His email is available. And we'll also have more links in the show notes. So do check that out. While we're on the topic, Justin Dorfman, what's your spotlight today? My spotlight today is from the Open Technology Fund. They just announced a free and open source software sustainability fund. It will open late summer 2023. Go to opentech.fund to learn more about it. Sweet. Thank you so much. My spotlight today is a book. It is Sacred Economics, Money, Gift, and Society in the Age of Transition by Charles Eisenstein. A wonderful book that I haven't read yet, which has really introduced me to the idea that actually there are other economies in the world besides money. There's gift economies, for instance, which I think is a lot of open source. So when I say I haven't read that, it's because I have too many books, but it doesn't mean you can't take the kernel of a book without having read it. So I have certainly read the chapter titles. And I'm looking forward to diving in. So that's Sacred Economics. Thank you so much, Charles Eisenstein. And Joel, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us in what was a free-flowing conversation, a bit more casual than we are wont to do. But I really appreciated it. Listeners, I hope you appreciated it too. If you have any thoughts, please do hit us up at podcast at stoneofsess.org. It's the email that will go to all the hosts. We'd be happy to take any comments of any sort. We almost never get any. Please send them if you can. Also, if you'd like this podcast, please like us on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get podcasts in general. If you want to talk more with other people, you can go on Discord with stoneofsess.org. That is a, our discourse forum. There will be a thread for this episode. You can go check out there. You can also probably email Joel. We'll try to get them on that thread if we can, but I'm not sure it's going to happen, but just go anyway. Go to sustainoss.org if you're interested in, in more stuff sustain. And podcast at sustainoss.org is where you can find all the show notes for this episode, where you can actually look at all the links that we have mentioned, such as Feroz's thing, such as Nadia's book. Nadia's also been on this podcast. You can check out her podcast, etc. Right now, I'm just talking to see how fast I can go. So I'm just going to stop and say thank you so much, Joel. This was the best. Have a good time. Good luck with your next thing. And thank you again. Thanks, Joel. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you so much, both of oh. you. I always enjoy it.